Welcome to Decolonization in Action podcasts, a podcast that considers how knowledge, medicine, science, and the arts are being decolonized today. My name is Edna Bonhomme, and I'm broadcasting from Berlin, Germany. If you like what you hear, please rate, comment, and share our episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify. This is Season 3, Episode 8, Curing Our Bodies, Black Healing and Reparative Rituals. This is a meditation, a provocation by the name of Curing Our Bodies, Black Healing and Reparative Rituals. I'm in conversation with Grace Doritu, but not just in an abstract sense, but through our creative spirit, through performance, and through poetry. Grace and I asked ourselves, how do we express our radical subjectivities that unsettle the discourses of pain and suffering? Since the transatlantic slave trade, Black women have found themselves leaving, departing, finding new homes within grandiose empires. Some of their names faded into the backgrounds as matrons in Antigua, caregivers in Guadeloupe, janitors in the UK, bus drivers in France. Others have had an influence that extends beyond the Caribbean Sea, beyond North America, beyond Europe. Even with the forcible removal from the African continent, Black people have diligently tried to defy assimilationist discourses that erase their histories. The African-American novelist Zora Neale Hurston boldly declared, if you are silent about your pain, they'll kill you and say you enjoyed it. Hurston was a Black anthropologist and storyteller who documented the oral traditions of voodoo in mules and men. She was an archivist who composed the voodoo pantheon without stigma and with considerable care. Imagination has been central to Black liberation, from the Haitian Revolution to the Dahomey Amazons to Black slaves and Black anti-colonialists who imagined their freedom and strategized to make that possible. Without the space to envision life that is grounded on human liberation, it is difficult to undo the harm that is constantly imposed. Pleasure and activism is part of creating the portal to Afrotopia of feminist practices and queer cosmologies. This is the type of mutation we want. As a Haitian-American person, I try to honor the Haitian Revolution, my Black ancestors, those of whom liberated themselves. I honor the goddesses of voodoo such as Ursula Dantor, who unabashedly exercises the queer spirit and women's independence. It is precisely because people have been pushed to their limits that they are fighting and that they know and have the capacity to learn and grow. And it is through this that we can find care. Up next is a piece that was performed by Grace Duritu. This piece was performed in 2016 at Le Laboratoire de Auberville, and it's called A Therapeutic Town Hall Meeting, Healing the Museum. It was curated by Dora Garcia, Matilda Villeneuve, and Alexander Baudelet. Accompanying the piece is the quote, Man is a social being. Factors such as political conflict, social tension, and economic stress affect his mental health. Such factors are at least as important as biological factors. 
Franz Fanon paid particular attention to these social problems, and his brand of political psychiatry is as relevant today as it was during his time. Alienation and oppression still exists, unemployment is widespread, and tyrannical rulers still oppress their people. Mental illness cannot be solved by drugs, but by changes in the political and social order. This quote was by H.A. Youssef. This is performed by Grace Duritu. I am the Sami goddess of the sun's healing power over darkness. Tonight, I will focus on healing mankind's dependence on Western medicine's ability to cure mental illness. Now that I've called in all the ancestors from the four directions, from the north, the east, the south, the west, Mother Earth and Father Sky, we can begin.
Now this is a point in which Grace and I had a conversation about her art practice, the year of black healing, and more information about the African diaspora and how we deal with historical trauma, radical healing, and the possibility of hope. Thank you so much, Grace Duritu, for joining me today. I'm um, in admiration of your work, especially since you've been doing wonderful work around art and healing. In fact, your project, which is the Year of Black Healing, a year-long research program in collaboration with different institutions, is so admirable and timely in this moment. Uh, and I absolutely love the fact that your work has also appeared in the Modern Art Museum at the Metropolitan Museum, and your works have also been reviewed and writing in the Paris Review, amongst others. So thank you again for joining me today. I wanted to start off by uh, asking you about your intellectual and artistic journey, especially given the gravity of your work and thinking about healing practices and how wide ranging it is. Uh, if we think about blackness, both as a political category and as a cultural category as well, um, how do you excavate this ideas, different ideas of healing given the linguistic, cultural, ethnic differences between uh, various people who are, are identified as black? Okay, well, I guess, um... I guess I try to think of it in terms of, um, in, if you talk about historical trauma, then I, I, I think mostly the most important is to think about naming it first and then talking about it openly. So this idea of that we've reached this point in history uh, when things can no longer be like hidden and put under the carpet. And so to me, the part of the healing process is like feeling heard and acknowledged. And so the, and that allows like an in-depth conversation because things, practical concerns can come afterwards. Um, you know, things like re uh, reparations and restitution of objects back to Africa. But the first part has to be in being acknowledged, that pain is acknowledged, and then you can kind of work with the other thing. And how do you define healing? Healing has been taken up quite extensively in a moment where pandemic is happening, COVID-19 is raging, and people are figuring out various ways to not just heal from the virus, but also from structural racism, displacement, and beyond. Can you tell us a bit how you define healing? Okay, I guess for me, I define healing as um, anything or any tool or methodology that is able to remove pain and send light to the situation. So that can be physical healing, mental, emotional, spiritual, energetic. Because um, the idea is that you want things to shift so you can have a new insight. So, you know, this type of aha moment, you know, that allows for transformation, you, you, need, you need to bring in something else to allow that to happen. So that can be, you know, whether it's something like fall, like meditation or energetic, you know, like um, something like Reiki, or it can be just you, you know, sitting down and contemplating and doing self inner dialogue. And I try to bring this more into art spaces because they're complicated, you know, in the history of, you know, working with different 
Great. And the artwork that you do is so expansive and collaborative and it's been shown everywhere. And recently I was at an exhibition at um, Hakave, the House de Cultura event here in Berlin. And uh, Ariella Azozi, who's a historian, um, anthropologist, researcher and scholar, uh, reminded me about how art is very much embedded in everyday life and outside of Western Europe and North America where people make it and it doesn't necessarily have to be in a museum space, but it's something that uh, people breathe in the same way that poetry is uh, passed on within families and singing and entertainment. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to be codified. And I, I just want to uh, get a sense of, of about your opinion on that. To what extent do you think art is embedded in everyday life on the African continent, within Europe, or beyond? Well, I, I mean, I, I like this question because I think it's important to highlight the differences and people to understand it's okay that there are differences. It's not a right or a wrong. And so for me, I, it, I mean, it's clear that art functions very differently in Europe and in Africa and Asia, uh, in the sense that in Europe, most people think of art as a profession. You know, as soon as they hear that someone's an artist, they think of, oh, that's their job. You know, and so there's this idea of art with a capital A, it's something that only a few rarefied people can do, and that has an industry and a market force surrounding it. Whereas I think in Africa, art is seen as more, like you say, everyday experience, you hear music, you see creativity wherever you go. So it's, it's much more holistic as an experience of creativity, you know, and some obviously artists now um, in Africa, you know, they're also, um, it's an industry and there's a, there's a market now beginning. Um, but that's actually, I would say more of a, a colonial Western um, or capitalist, you could say, neoliberal way of thinking about creativity that's being put into that other system. You know, rightly or wrongly, that's what's happened. And so, yeah, because here public space in Europe, for example, is managed. So it's very hard to have just all music abrupting or people juggling or people, you know, even wearing in, in really interesting fashion, you don't really get that spontaneity because everything's regulated, you know, in most of, um, most of Europe and North America. So, yeah, I would say that's really the difference, the differences between this kind of holistic experience of creativity, so art with a small A, and art with a capital A, which is much more of a, you know, a profession, um, there's a market around it, and there's an industry. And how do you see yourself fitting within that, that constellation between art with a capital A and art with a, a lowercase a? I mean, I guess I'm in both in a weird way, you know, in the sense that I've always spent a lot of time outside of the art world, living and working in different types of communities, different communities, monasteries, all like off grid. You know, I, I just came back um, last week from a, an off grid period in, I was in Spain in a summer retreat uh, down there. So this this way of living is like, been a very natural way of being 
And then, of course, I went to art school. Well, actually, I studied textile art first, and then I went to art school. So then I was around professional artists, and then I understood about, you know, more this um, professional realm as, a, as an artist. And so, I, for me, it's always ha I always have to keep both. You know, it's not like one or the other. But generally, most artists that go to art school, they, they focus their whole um, life on, like, trying to have and you know, going up the ladder and having a show, and a elaborate on that a bit because you mentioned the shaman as a healer and also as an artist how did you come to to see that as integrated and how is it that radical healing or these alternative forms of healing uh how do they get coded into your artistic practice how did, how did radical healing get coded into my artistic practice i guess in i guess how can i explain um I guess it's in the in the different ways that I work with people, you know, the way that I initiate like audiences into practices they're unfamiliar with. So like taking them on a shamanic journey, you know, and it's always for like a political purpose while we're doing it. It's artistic and a political purpose. But I am I'm initiating people who are quite rational into doing these things called non-rational methodologies, which is part of my um larger body of work called Healing the Museum. Because uh, back in 2012, I restarted all like museums of dying because they're so disconnected from what's going on outside in the real world. And so for me, it was very important to do different energies and different types of people, or at least make the audience who normally go to the museum try to see you know, the world in a different way, maybe in a more animistic, shamanic way. Well, how, um, so you mentioned shamanism as both a healing practice as well as an artistic practice. So when I think about um, healing practices on a very superficial level, especially if I'm drinking herbal teas or going to the doctor, I'm just trying to get better <laughs> personally. And what you're describing is, actually, or what you, I, I kind of want some elaboration on how the aesthetic integrates itself into healing uh, for your work. And for my work in particular, well, I get, yeah, but that's because it's embodied, you know, like, I guess there's no real difference between what I'm seeing <laughs> and, you know, having these lived experiences. I mean, maybe you can see that more in works where I've been using video, like my early video works um, in Africa or in Alaska in landscapes, performances or well, actually, no, you know, because I spent a lot of time, you know, living in these communities and kind of doing informal research, and then I brought it back to the city, um, you know, um, and kind of created this thing called the ARC, where I invited artists, scientists, and to live together. 
And so this was a way of like bringing the two things, two worlds together for me. But I think in throughout history, the, the, the shaman has always been a person who was a creative person because you're seeing things that other people don't see. And that's actually normally what artists, you know, traditionally are seeing things that regularly people that might not necessarily see. That's what the visionary artists are seeing. And so, um, and then you're translating that to the community, like the wider community, so they can enact some sort of healing or change or transformation. I mean, that is really the, the job of the artist. And of course, nowadays, yes, it's different because PR is involved. <laughs> you know, all these neoliberal mechanisms and capitalism of branding and all, you know, but that's like the basic idea. And so I, I guess I try to, you know, still, you know, draw on that idea. So in my work, there's definitely always something ancient and like prehistoric, something from another time, let's say, com and combined with something contemporary, you know, whether that's the media or the subject, you know, because you, I can't just have a nostalgia for the past. You know, I don't live in the past, I live now, so I have to deal with what's going on now. So that's where things like you know writing essays about race and class and you know like um working with institutions on you know looking at their structural problems um for example i've been doing a lot of institutional critique the last few years and so i've been working on this fashion project called cover slip we'll work with um refugees and migrants uh, and make um different collections and then we sell everything as pay what you can and this was quite interesting to see how that worked when we did a booth in an art fair you know to have our, our things is pay what you can next to other booths where you obviously have to pay the price of the painting the price of the sculpture but in ours you can pay whatever you want and this kind of like was fun to you know upset this kind of market mechanism um, and also, it, yeah, it proved kind of influential because some um, institutions, for example, in Belgium, uh, Kunsthal Gens and um, in England, Eastside Projects, they start to think about their admissions fee as pay what you can. Um, so that was kind of inspired at Coverstep project. So, yeah. Well, that's, that sounds absolutely great, especially what you're describing, which is the role of the artist isn't just to produce, but to figure out how to democratize art, especially in elite institutions where uh, having that entry point and access, you can perhaps push these institutions to have more um, accessibility for people who are working class, the poor, who are migrants, undocumented, and also just accountability when things go awry, perhaps. And I think that this then um, opens up a question that I have, uh, which is, uh, to what extent do you think it's possible, and given the work that you've done, to decolonize museum and art spaces? Sounds like you've been doing the, the, the groundwork and the footwork, and um, of course there are various opinions about this, from destroy it <laughs> to, you know, there can be this. Yeah, some people are like, let's just destroy it, and others are, uh, let's have some kind of reform. So I, I guess I want to ask you the, the question, what do you think we can do uh, to decolonize the museum? Um, should it even exist? 
No, I, I, I think there is a place for the museum in the contemporary world, because to me, what's more disturbing is that everything is commercialized. It's only the church, the library and the museum left in the public sphere that can be places of contemplation and uh, where places of different ideas can happen. And as soon as you commercialize those or you know, make them about production and um, entertainment, we don't have anything. Yeah, sorry, so yeah, the, what did I say? The museum, the church, the library and the park, that's it, that's it in the city. You know, so it's really important to have spaces where people can share different types of ideas that aren't necessarily, you know, productive or capitalist or, you know, trying to, trying to prove something or sell something. Um, so, but in terms of, let's say, um, um, let's say more historical museums, this is where it becomes more co complicated, doesn't it? You know, because of the objects, how the objects got there in the first place. You know, I, I am a believer of restitution, but it has to be restitution um, in a, a, under some sort of um, collaboration between uh, Europe and Africa. So that's what a project I've been working on with the Goethe Institute, um, a long-term project, and actually that we're doing, um, we're having an exhibition of right now in Torino, on Darcy Sandretto. Um, and that's, it's kind of, we've been going to different European museums, a group of artists, academics, scientists, and museum directors and activists um, from Africa and from Europe uh, to debate this in closed workshops over the last few years. So, and I've done uh, performances um, during these workshops. So I did one in the African Museum in uh, Brussels. Um, and that was a very powerful um, performance because we did it in the mineral room, uh, the German mineral room. And so um, all those minerals were obviously from the Congo. And so all the Congolese artists and scientists, they got really upset because we were like meditating in this room. And, um, and then we had this really powerful conversation afterwards. And the, and the director of the museum, um, who's a Belgian uh, guy, he, he, he was there as well. So all the, all the players were there, let's say. And so the conversation after was much more powerful because we had this really cathartic experience that came through the performance, you know, of understanding um, and, and resonating with these objects. So in terms of like working with ethnographic museums, yeah, it, it, it's not just a matter of, I think, of, changing labels and recontextualizing or you know getting dirty of you know changing you know staff you know diversity of staff or diversity of audience i mean it's a bit of everything but it's also also we, we as humans have to understand the museum is come from another time the idea of the museum isn't it the victorian age you know the capitalization when those things were deemed important for people different objects um, but I guess yes you could say that coloniality is, is a gaze uh, that can still be evident in contemporary spaces as well you know because like from the choice of the topic to the choice of the artist how the work is 
is contextualized or not contextualized, you know, but I, I have to say, I'm glad that the days of a magician on pair, you know, that exhibition happened in the Pompidou, and like basic transvanguardism <laughs> has gone, you know, <laughs> it might occasionally be a totally head, but that phase seems to have gone um, in museums and people have more understanding. Um, but yeah, it's a long fight especially when de dealing with objects and restitution and just the fact that you know um governments like for example macron he um he he basically um had that paper in 2016 said we're going to send all these objects back and it turns out like maybe 30 objects or less have been sent back you know and so there's real bureaucratic um descent against it you know holding this wave you know there was a wave and then it then it gets pushed back and that's kind of my idea of the year of black healing the year of black healing is kind of a, well it's kind of criticism or a half you know sarcastic ironic joke about the fact that in, in 2020 africa was, it was meant to be the year of africa for france you know and that means the african continent like the past colonies you know so that's uh, Senegal and uh, Mali and blah 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 and but in the continent of France so it's again this kind of branding and misinterpreting that that time of looking at Africa in that way has gone and also this idea that you can you know it's like I mean, when I look back to how um, when it was the Olympics uh, and the Olympics were in China and it was China artists this, China artists this in 2008 and it was, and what happened to all those Chinese artists, you know, we probably know about five of them after all of that. And so, yeah, I think I, what I don't like is when politicians jump on bandwagons and they claim, you know, a, 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 a territory, a geographic territory especially, um, you know, one in the global sack that can be used to promote their idea of diversity and what they're doing in the world. In some ways it reproduces the colonial conditions that created these museum collections to begin with. Exactly. And, and I think that, like what you said, on, on the one hand, it, it should be a common good for everyone to have access to parks, objects, spaces, art, etc. And it's unfortunate that the world with the rise of capitalism makes that those connections less likely. However, what does it mean to say or to ask ourselves who has the power to decide where things are and how memory is shared and whose memory is, uh, is produced? Uh, which lends me to um, one question, which is so often when we think about the restitution question that you brought up, there's also a question of how and how memory and particularly how dreams are uh, owned and shared. And, and it reminds me of Toni Morrison's um, text uh, or a quote that she said, which is, as a writer reading, I came to realize the obvious, the subject of the dream is a dreamer. Um, and I, in this moment, I'm realizing how important black dreams are, the dreams of people whose um, objects have been stolen, the dreams of people who might be having a global uncertainty and the dreams of people who witness black death on display. So how do you, what role do you think that dreams and joy provide in, in black healing practices? Oh, that's a good question. 
question. <laughs> no, I mean, in terms of dreams, yeah, I mean, we have to dream to be able to envision something better, don't we? You know, if, if we're talking about having a shared dream, you know, I mean, um, you could say, I, I always think of art history, that is the Western creation story. But all of the cultures have a creation story of how we came about, you know. So I think, you know, and that is a kind of a type of shared dream. So we need to tap into that again, you know, in terms of what we want to envision for the future, you know, not just for the climate future, but also for the future of, yeah, um, the people that who, who don't have any power on this planet and so yeah for me i guess what's been interesting in this period you know at the beginning of the pandemic there was like the the the, the you know something like naomi klein said about corona capitalism you know and so how that the situation just promotes and takes advantages of um disadvantaged people already and how that's been, you've seen it more and more and more, you know, after George Floyd, and, you know, it's just, it's just growing the situation. I, I was reading an article today about how so many Americans who uh, lost their job in 2008 have been living in motels and living, you know, in their cars and how this corona thing is just, you know, really exacerbating their situation. And so, for me, I think it's really key that we need to make a connection between um, land, culture, and climate. So, land in terms of like the people, um, you know, culture in terms of where where the objects come from, and yeah, climate. Because to go back to the art world, for example, a lot of um, museums, especially in Europe, especially in England are sponsored have corporate sponsorship and so a lot of this corporate sponsorship is like you know bad for the environment it's bad for uh, indigenous communities and but it's it that you know politicians and these corporations use culture to whitewash the issues and that's where it's hard as artists because we're part of that system rightly or wrongly and what we have to do with that so but i am proud to see so many like young artists and creative people like really you know fighting back you know on on instagram but also protesting and things yeah that's been great like the, the black lives matter protests and you know everything that's been going on and yeah i think it is affecting some i can see some institutions really taking it to heart and really working on it and then I can see others just like, you know, glossing it over or, you know, just using it as a, you know, like, um, how can you say, oh, what's the word? Yeah, PR marketing, but to keep, to keep, to keep the calm, to keep the calm, like saying that they're doing things, but it's just more to keep the calm than actually doing things. And so, yeah. I, I think I think this this situation, if it continues as it is, I mean, it's going to filter out so much, and it reveals so much about the truth. And you were asking me about what healing is. Yeah, healing is about seeing the truth, you know, in a situation. And um, 
Yeah, you can't heal until you see the truth, whether it's your own personal truth or global truth, and th and then we can heal. You know, otherwise you're just in denial. Yeah, and I I would also add, um, I absolutely agree that um, learning about the truth or even just doing some unlearning about the lies that we were told, especially mm -hmm. with respect to um, you know European supremacies and things of that nature that often fulfill colonialist ideas and I agree with you that this moment of, of, of resistance from below from people who want to get rid of racism sexism homophobia all of this stuff and to see statues toppling in the UK yes. Yes, yes. as well as uh, in the U.S., uh, it shows the power of people um, having and taking agency, those who've been oppressed for hundreds of years. And I would like to say that it's been wonderful talking to you and having this chat, and I hope that it's the first of many to come, especially as your artistic work and portfolio continues to grow and inspire people. Thank you. Thank you very much. Today, the specter of Black Death weighs heavy on my thoughts as the coronavirus rages. This has been predicated by analyzing and inspecting global trends, reading about the reproduction rates of COVID-19, and the increased death tolls that disproportionately impacts Black people. On the surface, the data creates a sense of abstraction, which highlights a condition of life which also points to new uncertainties, new normals, for those who are not on the front lines or those who have not lost a loved one, the numbers anonymize the experience of the disease, leaving one to experience the pandemic through sound bites, government decrees, and urban sirens. The aesthetics of data has circulated images of global pause, of social life, closure of cinemas, restaurants, and schools. Plazas which once served as a meeting space for lovers are left abandoned while digital spaces are being reconfigured for family gatherings, workout sessions, and book clubs. Courtship and intimacy are evolving, metamorphosizing, and even tantalizing. The internet has become the ambient space for media, anxiety, and social games. At the same time, the markers of Black death have not gone away. They are amplified and persisting because of the compounding crises deeply rooted in colonial structures, haunting the bones and souls of black folk. Racism is the barometer of our ability to live. I survived, but over the years I have learned that survival is not enough. How do we express radical subjectivities, radical love, radical care that unsettle these discourses of pain and suffering? Love is stitching together the personal and the political. Love is about practicing hope amidst despair. How do we practice that radical love towards Black life today? It means creating that tapestry of Black feminism, the Black radical tradition, and creativity. My name is Edna Bonhomme, and you just listened to Season 3, Episode 8 of the Decolonization Action Podcast. During this period of struggle, Black healing is necessary for our reimagination, for creating new lexicons. There is a rich history of insurrection that shows us we will not die lying down, 
Instead, we will put into action all of that is necessary to cure our bodies and our souls. Freedom is the way to heal. I would like to express my gratitude to How for hosting Radical Mutations on the Ruins of Rising Suns, and a special thanks to Natalie Anguzoma Bakora, Saskia Koshal, and Temnit Zaya for their wonderful work, as well as We Are Born Free Empowerment Radio, and to the brilliant artists, musicians, poets, rabble-rousers who were part of this programming. As always, there's a list of references and a bibliography in the show notes. To learn more about the podcast or find more information about the people and events referenced, please visit www.decolonizationinaction.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Deck in Action. If you like what you hear, please rate, comment, and share our episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify. Thank you again. This is Edna Bonhomme, and may you stay safe and healthy.